Good morning. Hey, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Next week, we're going to continue in our series. It's been many moons since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at the last half of Mark, starting with the Transfiguration events. I'm looking forward to that. This week, we are finishing our series entitled, Who is Faith Church? We've talked about how, how uh, Faith Church is a worshiping people, how we are a loving people. Last week, we talked about how we are a disciple-making people. Today, we're going to talk about how we are called by God to be a generous people. What do our investments look like as we are trying to make disciples? I want to tell you about a people in church history who gathered regularly to joyfully invest. The Moravians of the 18th century. It began with a man named Count Zinzendorf. How many of you guys have heard of him, Count Zinzendorf? Kind of fun word to say or name to say, right? Zinzendorf, he was a wealthy German nobleman, also a Christian, and he purchased a large estate in East Germany to house these Christian refugees from Bohemia as well as Moravia, and they were fleeing from religious persecution. And so he gathered about 300 of these refugees, and this little church eventually grew over time, and Zinzendorf became their pastor. August of 1727, there was a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There was this dramatic revival that occurred as uh, Christians were strengthened in their faith and kind of reawakened, and then also non-Christians became Christians during this time. And so this church, these individual people of this church, they became major investors, first of all, in each other's lives, but also in the broader kingdom work that God has. I want, you, I want to kind of briefly paint a picture for you. So they would have these hymn sings. I grew up in a home. We had hymn sings all the time. My mom would play the piano. My dad was, he had this booming voice, and we would have hymn sings at our house almost every year, especially during Christmas time. So the uh, Moravians, they had these hymn sings. Zinzendorf wrote over 2,000 hymns just by himself. 700 were published. And so they invested time and gifts and energy and money into cultivating rich worship and singing. Uh, one of his hymns, Jesus Still Lead On, it's widely used to this day. It's been translated in 90 languages. Before and after worship services, this church, they used their time intentionally, and so they were deeply committed to helping each other grow as disciples of Jesus. Zinzendorf would organize meals after service, got to get food and eat together and, and fellowship together and so forth. They were sacrificially invested in not only local kind of area outreach programs, but also global missions. Hundreds were sent from this church. And so it became a training center, a training center for disciples, for missionaries, for pastors, but also for moms and dads and all of us. And so they were a people who, as they gathered, they made eternal deposits and it paid off. God blessed their investments, not only with internal depth, by, but also external impact. And I think they experienced something that God has hardwired into his church. And here's the principle I want to give this to you. You're taking notes. Write this down. It's not the main idea of the sermon, but it's an important idea to consider. Here it is. We can do more together than separately. And that, that's that can be applied to kind of a particular local church as Christians here at Faith Church. As we gather together, we can do more together as we're pooling our own resources. 
But it also applies as local churches, maybe in a given region, pool their resources, pool their time and, and talents and so forth together to make an impact. This is what the Moravians experienced in the early 18th centuries. And friends, we can experience this as well. This morning, we're going to look at another church, the Corinthian church, and see their struggle to make eternal investments, in particular with their finances. I want to give you the background of kind of what's going on since we're kind of fresh in Second uh, uh, Corinthians here. The church in Jerusalem needed help financially, and so Paul and his comrades, they traveled to various churches in the area to collect money for the Jerusalem church. The Corinthian church heard about this, and they started a collection, but we don't really know exactly the reason. They didn't finish taking that collection. Maybe they forgot, or they got distracted, or they chose to invest in other things. And so Paul is writing in part to inspire them again to give, to take up that collection so that the Jerusalem church will be strengthened. I'm not going to read both chapters here, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, even though we're going to cover both chapters. I'm going to read a portion of chapter 9, which really gets at the heart of what we'll be talking about. So I'm going to read chapter 9, starting in verse 6 to the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul starts by saying this, the point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." Now, the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point in a sentence. When we sow together generously, we will reap together generously. When we sow together generously, we will reap together generously. So Paul focuses on the what, this idea of sowing in chapter 8 and then moving through the first part of verse uh, chapter 9, excuse me. And then he focuses on the why, this idea of reaping what does the farmer get from his, all of his efforts? Talk about reaping, starting in verse 6 and moving forward. So first sowing and then reaping. Here's the first point, sowing generously together. I want you to notice verse 6, the first verse that I just read of chapter 9. Here is kind of his driving point. Here's really where I'm getting my main point. And if you're wondering why, it's because Paul says it right away, right? He says, the point is this. It's so nice when authors do stuff like this, right? I mean, you kind of wish that every passage had this sort of clarity. Here's the main point I'm getting at, right? 
So this for Paul is the hinge verse before everything here kind of leads up to and is summarized in this verse, okay? So I'll say that again. I'm not sure whether I was clear. Everything before this verse, verse 6, leads up to it and is summarized in this verse, this idea of sowing. And everything after this verse gives us an idea of what it means to reap or what are we reaping. In other words, gives us motivation, give us, gives us rationale and incentives for the reaping so generously because you will reap generously. And these words, of course, bring us into the agricultural world, and so it should conjure up pictures of farmers, and they plant crops and sow seeds during a particular season, and in the next season, there comes a time when they're going to reap a harvest. And so Paul applies this picture specifically to the idea of giving. Today, we're going to apply this specifically to money. That's the focus here, but, but also we're going to broaden it out a little bit and consider other investments. You've maybe heard of the three T's, our time, our talents, and our treasures. Our time, our talents, and our treasures. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. Paul says, Now, as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. He's referring to giving. So what is Paul saying here is he's saying, listen, you know, in, in church so often it's, it's easy to think about growing in faith and knowledge and love. All of these things are good things. Let's keep doing those things, right? But what about giving? How can we grow in our generosity? How can we excel also in our generosity? And I hope our time together this morning will help you. 23 years ago, I was uh, sitting on a field just outside Memphis, Tennessee, uh, I was in my early 20s, and I was a young Christian at that time, and there was a man named John Piper, a pastor, who's up front, he's preaching, and he's telling a story, uh, he's, he's talking to a bunch of young people, 18 to 22-year-olds primarily, and he's telling this story about, uh, about a story he actually had read in Reader's Digest about these women who had retired, and, and they were kind of, they, they bought this property together, and they were on the beach, and they would kind of spend their time walking up and down the beach, and they were talking about how wonderful uh, this, this kind of retirement time was for them. And, and they were collecting seashells, and Reader's Digest was really kind of elevating and saying, hey, look at this wonderful retirement life that these two women are enjoying together. And Piper, in his, you know, typical intense manner, he, he looked at, you know, these 18 to 22-year-olds. I'm one of them. I was around 20. And he says, you know, can you just imagine these two ladies as they are standing before God at the end of time? And he looked up and he said, look, Lord, look at my seashells. And it was so striking to me as a young Christian man that we can get to the end of our life and we can hold up seashells. The bottom line is all of us are investing our time, talents, and treasures in something. The question is, what? So we might be using our time to love folks here at Faith Church, serving the poor, perhaps, or evangelizing our non-Christian neighbors. Or we might be squandering our time on Netflix and doom scrolling and video games. We might be using our talents to build up the saints of Faith Church, or we might be squandering our talents by not using them to edify the church. We might be giving generously of our finances to Faith Church and perhaps other missionaries and other kingdom work, or we might be mishandling our funds in some way. Do you remember what Jesus said about our 
treasure. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Friends, how you spend your money, how you invest, reveals something about the condition of your heart. We can come to church as consumers, or we can come to church as servants. We can sow sparingly, or we can sow generously. Let's start with the basic principles that undergird these two chapters. So here's just some kind of introductory thoughts before we dig into the text. Just some principles that are kind of in Paul's minds, and they may not be explicit in this chapter, but they're explicit in other places in the New Testament. So first of all, if you're a Christian, you're part of a local church, and your role in that local church must include giving. In the Old Testament, God's people gave a portion, a tithe, 10%. They gave their first fruits to God. In the New Testament, we gather together as a spiritual family. We're united by the same faith, the same Savior, the same mission to make disciples and plant churches. So we are a family that works together to advance the gospel. When we give, we are saying that we want to see the gospel speed ahead. We want to see God glorify himself through the ministry of the word, and our money goes to supporting that effort, whether that's here at Faith Church or beyond our doors. Of course, God doesn't need our money, but he certainly uses it. And you might be thinking, Pastor, this sounds awfully self-serving. Like, are you, uh, you know, you after something here? No, friend, I'm, I'm just reading the Bible and trying to understand it and apply it to our church. If you're a Christian, you have an obligation to give. Now, give to whom? Well, I would say the priority is to give to your local church first. We see that here. Again, it's implied. Paul's going to this church, or he's sending this message to this church. Titus is going to go collect some money from this church. Well, the implication is this church and their members of the church are giving to the ministry of this church. And he's saying, hey, as you continue to give, give more so we can take a portion of it to this Jerusalem church. Same thing with Faith Church. There's a portion that goes to strengthening our church, and we'll talk about that in a few moments here. A portion of this goes to, your giving goes to work outside of Faith Church. And how does Faith Church, or how do you choose what kind of gospel work to give to? That's what we talked about last week. We want to be giving to people or churches or organizations that are crystal clear on the gospel, that have sound doctrine, and that are very much interested in making disciples and planting churches. If you're sitting on the missions committee, this is a good rubric for choosing and evaluating missionaries. We want to be good stewards of our money. Okay, so just a few foundations just to kind of orient us to this topic of generosity and money. Now back to the text. Notice again, verse 6. It says, so generously. Now that is the point that Paul is kind of getting at here, which means... He's already kind of developed that point in the verses prior. So when we look back at chapter 8, we see three contours of generous giving. There's going to be three subpoints under the first point. And then later, not too much later, hopefully, there's going to be three subpoints under the second point. Okay? First point, three subpoints. So three subpoints here they are. Um, Paul is asking the church to give sacrificially, to give out of their surplus, and then also to give for the word. And I'll repeat that later. Let's start with the first idea. Notice the opening verses of chapter 8. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2 During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty 
overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, etc., etc. So here's some Macedonian churches. Paul highlights them and he says, here we have a group of churches in a particular region who Paul says are generous. And he puts forth their example. But what I want you to notice is that they gave out of their poverty. When they were in financial crisis, they barely had anything at all. That's when they gave. So friends, generous giving is sacrificial in nature. There is a cost associated with it. The New Testament financial ethic is not one of just meeting the Old Testament baseline of a 10% tithe. Listen, friends, we as Christians are not beholden to that because the Mosaic law has been fulfilled in Christ. We are now under the law of Christ. And so for Christians today, 10% is a simple guideline or benchmark. The New Testament financial ethic moves us beyond that to this idea of sacrifice. Paul is not after generic spiritual investments, investments that are easy or comfortable or convenient. Paul's after more generosity, sacrificial in nature. And that means we're going to feel it. That means there's going to be a pinch. If it doesn't hurt, you're not sacrificing. Now, what does sacrificial giving look like? Well, it might mean you don't eat out as much. I know someone who gave up their uh, annual vacation to give more to the work of God. Maybe you invest sacrificially of your time, your gifts. Perhaps you give up some of your time to serve in the youth ministry or serve in the children's ministry. You give up some time to use your gifts of hospitality or teaching or encouragement within faith church. But you're going to start to feel that pinch, right? You're going to start to feel a little bit of that squeeze. Well, that's what Paul is exhorting here. So, brothers and sisters, first of all, let me encourage you, give until it hurts, just a little bit. It's easy to give up until the pain line, right? I mean, we can still do all the things our family dreams of, dreams of doing if we give this much, but more than that, it's going to kind of, oh, it's going to limit what we do as a family. What if you have to sacrifice a few of those dreams for the sake of strengthening faith church or for the sake of strengthening some other gospel work? More disciples made, more churches planted, the gospel advancing, perhaps in a new region in this world. Would that not be worthwhile? There's more from Paul. Notice verses 14 and 15. The Corinthian church, according to Paul, ought to also give from their surplus. Let me read these verses to you, verses 14 and 15. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, the Jerusalem church's need, so that their abundance may be in turn, in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Paul's saying that there will be times when a church or even individual Christians have a lot. We have a surplus. We don't know what to do with it. While perhaps another Christian or another church has a little, they're struggling. They don't know what to do next. Maybe a few years down the road, those situations will swap. But in both situations, one church or one Christian family can give out of their surplus. Now, all of us have a surplus in something. Maybe it's a little extra time. You know, maybe a weekly commitment ends. Maybe it's extra money. You get a bonus or a raise or your car payment ends. 
Maybe it's extra talent. It's kind of been laying around dormant, maybe unused or underdeveloped. Friends, what if every time we got a bonus or a commitment ends that we didn't look to increase our standard of living, but we look to increase our standard of giving? Wouldn't that be something? I know you could put the extra dollars towards your summer cruise fund. I wish I had a summer cruise fund. Or you could put it towards getting your monthly, getting your monthly giving a little bit of a boost. Maybe you move from 10% to 12% or 15% to 17%. Maybe you got a missionary friend, a church planner's in real dire need, and so you divert a couple of those percents. It's 15 to 17, maybe you divert that 2%, that bonus you just got, and you give it to that church or that church planner or that missionary friend. Here at Faith Church, I want to explain to you a little bit about where every dollar goes so you know how we are stewarding your money. Many of you know this, but I wanted to bring it up again for your information. So here, uh, every dollar, out of every dollar, 20 cents goes to missions, 20% to missions, which is really Extraordinary. I'm so thankful for that. About 50% goes to staffing and, and all the associated costs with that. 15 uh, cents goes to ministries and all of the different kind of administrative work uh, that is associated there. And then 15 cents to our property or building our grounds, all the bills associated, you know, keep the lights on, air condition on, on this hot day, all that kind of stuff. Now, why is this good to know? Well, because we are called to be good stewards of our resources. We are called to pool our money together, our resources together in a strategic way. And that means we've got to pay our bills and do some upkeep on our building or our grounds or pay our staff. These aren't just kind of frivolous or secondary things. Our desire, of course, is for the ministry of the Word to advance, for the gospel to advance. And so we pool our funds so that, for example, you have three staff pastors who offer the Word in different ways. We also have administrative staff. Now, what's that about? Well, they're essentially staff deacons. You know, they support the ministry of the word in a thousand different ways. Your elders, your pastors, we couldn't do what we do without our administrative staff doing what they do. They're unbelievably faithful and kind and great for our church. I wanted to make an announcement, a happy announcement. Uh, just this past week, uh, we signed and then he signed back. Uh, a brother who's going to come and be our, our new music leader. Uh, he's from South Carolina. His family and him will be moving here, Lord willing, in late October, early November. Um, it's a part-time uh, music leader, 20 hours a week. We're so grateful for Aaron and his leadership over the last several weeks, by the way. Uh, he's done a great job, or several months, I should say, not weeks. <laughs> Important detail. <laughs> And Aaron's, Aaron's going to continue leading and working with, uh, with this new brother. His name's Joey. Uh, really excited about having him. If you were here in mid-May, you heard him on the piano. He led some of our singing. He was here for that weekend. Uh, we're also hoping to hire a pastoral assistant, Lord willing, in the coming months who would give uh, attention to youth ministry and some other kind of holes in our church. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because you may know this. We are a little behind on our budget. And we'd feel more comfortable about these hires if our giving improved. So let me ask you, friends, would you consider giving sacrificially? Would you consider giving out of your surplus so we can feel more comfortable? We have needs in the children's ministry. Pastor Drew and Mary Beth and um, Claire would let you know about this. We've got all these beautiful babies. 
and they're overflowing, uh, you know, the, the rooms we have them. And so we need more kind-hearted baby carriers. You know, would you consider volunteering to help in that way? That would be so encouraging, not just to me, it would be encouraging to their moms and dads, right? It allows those moms and dads to come into this room, to worship together, to, to be discipled well here. We'd love for you to help serve in the Lord's Supper. You see all of us kind of up front here, you know, serving the Lord's Supper. Christy Lucas would love to talk to you about that. Am I right, Christy? And Carrie Maynard would love to talk to you about helping out in the lobby, being one of our greeters, welcoming people to our church. These are just some places you can serve. So Christians are called to give sacrificially, to give out of their surplus, but they're also called to give alongside the ministry of the Word. I want you to put your eyes on verses 16 and following. We're not going to read all these verses. But what do we see in these verses? Well, Paul sent out these church workers not only to collect money, so Titus is going out and all these different guys going to collect the money, but also to strengthen the churches along the way through the preaching of the word. Look at verse 18 with me. Actually, I'll start reading in verse 16. Paul says, Thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus, for he welcomed our appeal and, being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. So here's Titus. He's going out. He's got a bag of money. He's like, hey, you know, um, can you give some money for the Jerusalem church? Now look at verse 18. We have sent with him the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. You know, it's kind of like... um, you know, it's kind of like, hey, guys, we're, we're going to send Godwin to grab your collection. And, oh, yeah, we're also sending John Piper to be a guest preacher at your church. Thanks, Paul, right? <laughs> Woo! That's kind of what's going on here. There is a practical reality. We need money. That's what Paul's saying. But also a spiritual dimension that is always present. Paul says we need your money to support this word ministry in Jerusalem, and you need the word. Friends, what is the sort of relationship between churches that we see here? I think it's a multifaceted gospel partnership where churches share money and resources, even preachers, all for the advancement of the gospel. Gospel partnerships involve givers. Gospel partnerships involve goers. And we could do far more together again than we can do separately. That applies to uh, a, a particular local church like ours. Paul's calling on the Corinthian church to collect money, and so individual members are called to give, but it also applies beyond just our local church. It's so easy for us to just have our eyes on faith's church, our own church. These chapters remind us that good, autonomous churches should have relationships with other good, autonomous churches. And so faith church should absolutely partner with other churches who not only share our theological and philosophical DNA, but have a unified and trusting attitude, us towards them and them towards us. Those are the kinds of churches that we want to partner with. And here's the deal. We have a great number of churches we have good relationships with. Let me just give you two examples of how this manifests. In October, at the end of the month, we're going to hold a joint service in the evening with eight to ten other churches. Some of you were there last year for this, last October. It was a really, really sweet time. Worship together, encourage each other, share a meal together down in the, um, in the gym. We're hoping to put on a parenting conference in April, and we're going to partner together with other local churches to put this conference on. We want you to come to that and be strengthened by that. But one of the beauties of that is, hey, we can do more together than separately. Okay, so Paul calls us, calls us to sow, to give, sacrificially, out of our surplus, 
and to support or strengthen the ministry of the Word. Now, friends, from what I can tell, I've been here for about six years. From what I can tell, generosity has marked Faith Church really well. Even when we've been tight over the years, God has provided. We've never had to kind of, you know, make a major cut or let someone entirely go due to a shortfall. And how has God provided for Faith Church? Well, it's through your generous giving. So I just want to praise God publicly for your generous giving over the years. But to use Paul's language in chapter 8, how can we continue to excel in this? How can we grow in our generosity? We've got some new people, some new members here at Faith Church. I want to exhort you. Would you consider giving faithfully, regularly to this church so that the gospel can advance here, but also beyond these doors? Okay, so we talked about sowing. We're going to talk about reaping now. Verses 6 through 15. I've been so helped by um, Jared Mellinger's teaching on this chapter in particular, so I'm going to bring in some of his insights as we walk through this chapter. So the farmer sows because he wants the crop, of course, right? He doesn't just kind of sow aimlessly. He's got a particular aim in mind. So we've got to ask the question, as Paul is bringing us into this kind of word picture, what is the spiritual crop here? What's the benefit? What's the fruit, the blessings, the incentives of sowing? Well, I want to point out to you three pieces of fruit or three crops, three Ps, okay? So here's the first P, the pleasure of God, the pleasure of God. Notice verse 7, it says, God loves a cheerful giver. It's nice. God loves a cheerful giver. This is the divine posture of God in heaven towards a cheerful giver. There's affection there. There's pleasure there. When we are generous, it brings pleasure to God. And it kind of reminds me of parenting. You know, think about the joy of a parent, uh, joy that a parent experiences when a young child freely gives or freely serves or freely is thinking of other people, you know? How many parents here in this room, and I'm sure, you know, as you're thinking about maybe your grandkids too, you may have a similar experience. You know, you, you desperately want your child or your grandchild to share their toy, you know, and and sometimes they'll say, okay, fine, and then they'll kind of grab that toy and, and just shove it into the hands of this other kid. And we can kind of see their bad attitude, right? And that's not a fun parenting moment. I mean, there's no joy or pleasure in that, right? But there, then there are other occasional moments, let's call it, you know, when one of your kids does something different. I can think of a time when Sam, he was younger, probably maybe five years old, and his little brother was crying about something, and he says, here's a toy to make him feel better. I'm like, that's so sweet. Actually, I was thinking, like, that, that's a Christmas miracle right there. Like, I mean, I did not see that coming, you know? And it brings us so much joy, those moments, right? There's a sense of joy. There's a sense of pleasure. You find yourself delighting in your children. Well, friends, that is the heart of our divine Father when we sow generously. It's a beautiful thing when God's children are giving in this manner. It brings your heavenly Father pleasure. I want you to notice in verse 7 of chapter 9, there's two bad motives that Paul warns his readers of. Don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. Do you see that? What does it look like to give reluctantly? Well, I think it means to give begrudgingly 
Oh, about 10, 15 years ago, Janie and I were having a conversation with, with a good friend of ours, a single lady named Martha, and she was sharing about her need, and she was really behind on some things, and she couldn't figure out what to do. Well, we had just been given kind of this bonus, and we had this big chunk of money just kind of sitting in our account. And, and so we had a friend in need, and so we had some extra money, and I was like, okay, and wrote her a check and gave it to her. But I wasn't really a cheerful giver. I mean... Maybe externally I was smiling, you know, and I'm like, here's the check. It was more like what was going on inside was more like, you know, oh, fine. Guess we're not going to have fun this year. You know, feels like we're skipping Christmas, you know, because I had, and here's the deal. This is important. I was dwelling on how I could have used that money in a different way. Friends, that is reluctant giving. Even though I did the good thing, I didn't do it for the pleasure of the Father. I didn't do it cheerfully. Paul also says, don't give from compulsion. You know, some folks feel pressure from others. Notice it says, as you have decided in your hearts. So there's a freedom. Each of us have to figure out our investments. Uh, You know, church leaders should not apply inappropriate pressure. You know, the music's playing and kind of sweeping you up into the emotion. And maybe it's the force of his personality trying to kind of guilt you or charm you or pressure you. Like, we don't want to do that here at Faith Church. Instead, we should be so engaged with the Spirit in prayer, so motivated by the pleasure of God, so mindful of the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world that we then carefully plan and decide, how much should I give? To whom should I write this check? Where should I invest my time? How should I use my gifts? So both reluctance and compulsion, Paul warns against. As you think about it, both reluctance and compulsion are also forms of spiritual bondage. The reluctant giver is in bondage to money or their stuff or recreation. They cling to their things. They cling to their hobbies. Their world is kind of downsized and restricted to their own self-interest. And then their hearts and their joy shrink in proportion. They are a mashup of Gollum and the Grinch. You know, their, their worlds are turned inwards. Instead of looking up to the smiling face of God, instead of looking outwards to the needs of God's people and the initiatives of God's church. And what about compulsion? Well, compulsion enslaves people to the opinions of others, to the approval of people. Friends, too many of us are concerned about what other people think. Who's looking at me? Who's watching me? You know, how's my public image? Is it positive? Is it negative? And it hamstrings us. It it, it enslaves us. It holds us down from being a cheerful giver. Friends, would you allow the smile of God, the pleasure of God, to be the driving force, to be the driving motivation of your giving? This is what will emancipate you from the inordinate love of money or recreation or possessions or the approval of of people. Giving has the unique way of pushing us to treasure what is eternal, especially Jesus. Because we as Christians, we would say we experience a superior joy in Christ, we'd also say we no longer need to be slaves of money or slaves to people's opinions. We have been set free to give, to serve for the pleasure of God. Now, if you're a Christian, if you've been walking with God, I hope, I pray, you've experienced some of that freedom that allows you to let go of those shackles, that allows you to freely serve and freely give of yourself 
and that includes your finances. Second blessing, the second motive is the provision of God. Second P, provision of God. You know, sometimes we get worried. <laughs> you know, what's going to happen if I serve sacrificially? Will I compromise my family? What happens if I give generously? Will I be able to pay my bills? I want you to look again at this text at verses 8 through 11. Every time we invest of ourselves in the church, we will be blessed. God is generous to the generous. And what will God provide for us? Notice verse 8, he says, you will have everything you need. Verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way. Now, friends, are we talking about the prosperity gospel here? The more you give, the richer you get? Do we give in order to increase our comforts? No. The prosperity gospel is a lie. But do we give in order to get something else? Yes. I want you to see this. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. As it is written, he, God, distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now watch verse 10. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You see that? The harvest here is a spiritual harvest of righteousness. It's personal spiritual growth, excelling in every good work, according to verse 8. This is what we reap. You become a Christian, you've come to Jesus in faith and repentance. You've had a righteousness deficit before you came to faith. You are spiritually bankrupt before you came to Christ. And so Christ's alien righteousness needs to be imputed into your account, and he gets your filthy rags. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Praise God, right? But we need to grow in actual righteousness. Christ's alien righteousness is credited to our account, but then we also need to grow in actual righteousness. That is what Paul is talking about here. As you give, you will become godly. You will bear kingdom fruit. So, uh, you know that sin you're battling that seems to have an upper hand in your life? What better way to conquer that sin, to put greed or worldliness or sinful anxiety to death than by giving to others? When we invest, we combat the deep-seated sin in our hearts, and the result is a harvest of righteousness. We begin to excel in good deeds. And besides just the personal spiritual benefits, as we talked about before, there's another harvest of righteousness. We've talked about um, not just kind of doing this for personal spiritual gain, that's what we just mentioned, but this also includes the idea of multiplying disciples, producing spiritual descendants. As our money goes places where there's a need, but there is a sense in which God provides for us by meeting our physical needs. I want you to notice verse 8 again. Verse 8 of chapter 9, And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. So we can't restrict this to only financial. But every, notice the amount of time every was used uh, in that verse I just read, every includes God's fatherly care in supplying our physical needs. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Or Matthew 6, Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. He's talking about clothing and food and what we need. 
I was speaking to a member uh, at some point, and they were talking about how uh, they've been pursuing God and following God for, for many years, and they'd get into these tight financial spots. You know, many of us get into these kind of seasons of, of tightness. They kept giving to the church, and they, they were being stretched, and, and they started to experience God's blessing. As they were trusting God, we're going to give sacrificially, we're going to give out of our surplus, we're going to trust God. He's going to provide. And they started to experience God's blessing. And some of that blessing was spiritual in nature as they saw their faith and trust grow. Some of that was just provision. As they would get these like random envelopes of money as the body of Christ stepped in out of their surplus to help them. Now, I feel bad for those who don't give generously because they don't realize that they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. They're limiting the experience of God's grace. Friends, there is a harvest of righteousness for those who sow generously. So will, the, will you trust the Father's promise to make all grace abound to you? As perhaps you're struggling a little bit. So pleasure, provision, the third blessing is the praise of God, the praise of God. Notice in verses 11 through 13, we see this. Let me read these verses to you. The praise of God. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Isn't that interesting? When we gather to invest in gospel work, it produces, it multiplies worship and praise in others. What a thought, right? That, that our behind-the-scenes investment in a child on Sunday morning that our hand-on-a-shoulder prayer in the lobby after service, that the check that we write and put in, put in the offering box, that these things produce and multiply the worship of God in others? Let me just give you some examples, three quick examples. Um, Keith prayed for the Philip family in East Asia. Our funds are supporting this family as they proclaim Christ among the na nationals that, who are there. And they are looking to establish a church this is a place where there's very few healthy gospel-preaching churches. There's a need for more gospel workers. There's a need for a church. So our funds are supporting that. It's great, right? You guys have heard about our Middle Eastern trip back in March. Well, our funds, uh, church's funds, allowed Pastor Drew and I and Dave French to minister the gospel to college students and a few churches made up of 50-plus nations. Okay, so I still remember, just a little snapshot, I still remember speaking to an Egyptian woman after I preached. It's not a Christian, comes from this wealthy family and that employs a Nigerian woman who's a member at the church I was preaching at. And so we talked, the three of us were talking about the sermon, got to share the gospel with her. She was asking some really hard questions. I was trying my best to answer those questions. And I'm like, hey, I'm about to go get on a plane and leave. So how can I encourage this Egyptian woman? It was her first Sunday at church. So I said, hey, seems like you guys are friends. She's a Christian. You're not. I didn't say that out loud. And I said, hey, how about you two read the gospel of Mark together? And how about you trust God's word to do the work in the life of this woman? I don't know whether they've done that, right? But that's the kind of work that we were able to do. Now, listen, there's nothing special about me. You know, I'm just a guy. But your money helped me to get over there and have that conversation. We have a Simeon Trust preaching worship that we host every May. And our funds, with the, uh, which support our staff, but also the workshop program itself, gets multiplied out to 
uh, 100 pastors in Ohio and other places, right? So you've got 100 plus pastors that are trained. So 100 plus pulpits that are strengthened. That's 100 plus churches being encouraged to worship Christ more fervently all through your faithful giving. I'm grateful, grateful for that. So friends, when we give generously, this is what happens. The gospel advances. Pastors are helped. Disciples are encouraged. Churches are strengthened, not only here, but overseas. We get to experience the pleasure of God and the provision of God and the multiplying praise of God. As we come to a close here, I want to point out a fourth blessing, a fourth key. I want you to look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This is a little glorious verse in this chapter. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You hear that? Here's the foundational motive for our kingdom investments. Friends, why should you give? Why should I give faithfully to faith church and other gospel works? Well, it's the poverty of God. Pleasure, provision, praise. These are all things we reap in the future as we give. But this one, poverty of God, we've already reaped, haven't we? Listen, friends, Jesus had it all as God's beloved son. But he set that aside to become poor for you and for me. It's like the passage that Pastor Drew read earlier this morning, Philippians chapter 2. It illustrates that so well. Jesus' poverty leads to our spiritual wealth. We don't invest together out of guilt. We don't invest together out of fear. We don't sow together and give together to impress or to boast about our numbers or to win the Dove Award for Best Giving Church, right? We invest together because God has first invested in us. And His investment was sacrificial in nature, was it not? And it was out of the overflow of who he is and his love for us. Now, some of you here perhaps are not Christians. Uh, if that's you, we're not after your money. We don't want you to focus on your generosity towards us. We want you to focus on Christ's generosity towards you. Some questions as we come to a close. Do you find yourself needy? Do you find that you can't take care of your sin, your shame, your guilt? And that's why you're feeling perhaps spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, just like all of humanity. Well, if that's you, you have or you can have a tremendous treasure in Jesus. He became poor so sinners like us can become rich. Would you repent and believe in him, trust in him? But if you're a member here of Faith Church, let me call you because of the past poverty of God, because of what God has done for you in Christ so generously here at Faith Church, give sacrificially, give out of your surplus, give alongside and for the ministry of the Word. And as we do, we will together reap generously. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to ponder this passage and message.